0: This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house." Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the Word of God and it is eternally true. We have to ask today who it is that has influence. And we see here in this text that God is pleased by His people having influence. Because light and salt are influential. Salt retards and stops putrefaction in meat. And light in the world is what makes us able to walk, what makes us able to see. And Jesus here says that we are the salt of the earth and that we are the light of the world. Now, there are many applications of this to our life together as 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 a church. One of the things that I think has has caused the church to lose its salt and light today is that in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, uh, the application to particular communities is not made. It's just spoken of generally. And we read the New Testament epistles and we see that every time one of the apostles writes to a particular church, that he makes particular points. And particular points that are suited to the particular people, the particular place, the particular problems. All of Scripture is particular. And so we are a congregation, and it it is not incidental that we are a congregation in Bloomington and that this is a small community with a large research university. I went and did my undergraduate work at UW-Madison, and in Madison I've said that there are many things I like about Madison better than Bloomington. One of the things I like better about Madison is that Madison's university is as large as this but that it's not as overwhelming to the community as as IU is to Bloomington. Because in Madison, you have, among other things, Oscar Mayer wieners. And you know, that's pretty humiliating. You know, especially when you see the little truck going down the street. You can't have too high thoughts of who you are and what you are when the Oscar Mayer Wiener truck is going down the street and you find yourself singing, Oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer Wiener. That is what. And at the other end of State Street from the university is what? The capital of the state of Wisconsin. And so that disciplines you also because there is a seat of power that is at least on competition with the university. There's an awful lot else in Madison. And so the university is humbled. It's it's not the center of the universe in Madison. In Bloomington, Indiana University is the center of the universe. And so if you think of the university as the center and, and, and the location of the greatest pride and power and wealth of the Western world, and I don't think anybody can argue with that, and you think of the pride of position it holds in Bloomington, you realize that The reality of Indiana University is always going to be the defining reality for Church of the Good Shepherd as long as it stays in Bloomington. And so I want to think a little bit about what it means for us to be salt and light, particularly in the context of Indiana University. Now, just for the sake of uh, of us disciplining ourselves a little bit, I want everybody that either ministers regularly to people from the university or gets money from the university in any form, directly or indirectly, or attends school and gives money to the university, or has had a degree from this university or is seeking a degree from this university to stand. All right, now, this is our congregation. You may be seated. Indiana University does define our life as a congregation. And so when we think about what it is to be salt and light, we need to start with Indiana University. It's not where it stops, but I want to focus on that today. I want us to think when our Lord says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Think about what the history of the university is. Now, I'm I'm a history buff. I studied history at UW. Um, medieval history. And so I know, and some of you may not know, but you're about to learn that the history of the university is the history of the Church of Jesus Christ. This is just true. Now, if I were to tell you that it's true of particular universities in the United States, you'd be more willing to go along with that. But I'm just telling you that the cultivation... Did you know, for instance, that the highest literacy rate the world has ever seen was Colonial America. And do you know why the literacy rate was higher there than any other time? It's because every single parent wanted their child to grow up learning to read the Word of God. And to this day, there is no higher literacy rate anywhere. And so you'll understand if I say that the history of the university and of learning is the history of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, to illustrate, particularly in the United States, let me read to you from the charters of two specific universities in the United States, first from the charter of Columbia University in New York, reading its charter issued in 1745 where it is said, quote, the chief thing that is aimed at in this college is to teach and engage the children to know God in Jesus Christ. You wouldn't be as scandalized if it just said to know God. But it says to know God in Jesus Christ and to love and to serve Him in all sobriety. A week after the Little Five, right? They're predicting 37 arrests this year, they predicted. In all sobriety, of course, that's not what it meant back then, but never mind. Godliness and righteousness of life with a perfect heart and a willing mind. That's the charter of Columbia University. And this Harvard, its charter in 1636, quote: Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end, end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. This is the meaning of the intellectual life. This is the purpose. This is where it came from. The life of the mind is not owned by the pagans. It's owned by Jesus Christ. And we exist to know Him and to make Him known. And if you're at the university in any form at all, it is your calling to be salt and to be light. Sadly, though, we have lost our saltiness, our savor. And we have allowed a bushel basket to be put over us. In fact, some of us have gone out and found a bushel basket and made ourselves really small and pulled it over top of us. A few years ago, J. I. Packer was speaking at Mary Lee's parents publishing house in their chapel. And here is what J. I. Packer said about the influence of Christians today. He said this. (coughs) Here in North America, Uniquely, and for those of you that don't know who J.I. Packer is, um, he wrote probably uh, the single uh, most important work of the last 50 to 75 years, Christian work called Knowing God. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. Uh, Many of us trace the maturity of our Christian lives uh, back to the time that we read that book. It's called Knowing God, and it's a book on the character of God, and It is very interesting. (laughs) He says this, Here in North America, uniquely in the English-speaking world, I travel the English-speaking world and can assure you of this, you Americans have a very large percentage of the community making a Christian profession, insisting that it is an evangelical Christian profession. You ask people, are you born again? And something like a quarter of Americans are prepared to stand up and say, yes, I believe I am. Praise God for that. It does make the United States unique in the English speaking world to have so many evangelical Christians around. But what impact are we making on the flow of culture, on cultural development, the world of ideas, the world of the schools and universities, the opinion makers, the thought journals, and the thought literature that is published? In other words, do we still have our savor? Are we still salty? Is our light shining? And he says no. He says one asks that question, and the answer seems to be that everything goes on as if we weren't there. Can you imagine a Christian being on the campus of Indiana University? A Christian, mind you. A Christian. Can you imagine a Christian being on the campus of Indiana University? Now, you're going to be irritated with me. A Christian, mind you. A Christian. Can you imagine a Christian being on the campus of Indiana University and everything going on as if they weren't there? (laughs) You get my point. It couldn't happen. You know the one thing that did not happen when Paul showed up at the Areopagus in Athens was that everything went on as if he wasn't there. As a matter of fact, I can't find one city that Paul showed up in that everything went on as if he wasn't there. I was taking Taylor to the soccer game the other day. Irritated with his play the previous game. And I said to him, what? I said, Taylor, today, show up. (laughs) He'd been there. He'd been kicking and dribbling and doing everything he was supposed to do, but he hadn't shown up. You know what I mean. How many of us on the campus of Indiana University simply don't show up? We're there, but we're not there. When asked that question, the answer seems to be that everything goes on as if we weren't there. The most you can say, perhaps, and I'm not sure just how strongly one can say even this. I love the hedging of academics. Uh, I'll read it again for your savoring. The most you can say, perhaps, and I'm not sure just how strongly one can say even this, one, all right, is that the presence of a lot of evangelicals around and about in North America slows down some of those post-Christian, anti-Christian, sub-Christian, non-Christian trends that would otherwise be operating much more rapidly and much more potently than they are at the moment. Now you can say, well, that's saltiness. It slows down the putrefaction, and so we're doing what we should do. But think about the early church. What did they do? Did they slow down the putrefaction of the Roman Empire? Is that what they did? you ever read The City of God? Augustine's work? He says, the only thing I can see at most is that those trends are being slowed down. The drift in the culture is still away from the Gospel. A quarter of us evangelical Christians. A quarter. We... As Christians, however many of us there are, just don't seem at this point to have done very much to stop society from rotting in that way. Though that's where we are, by prayer and by action, we must seek to make more impact tomorrow than what we made yesterday. Sure, the restraining of evil, the restraint of the nosedive into sub-Christianity is something of the effect of salt. If real influence is being exercised that way, we should be thankful. But the rot is still there. Please, God, some of these trends can be reversed in our time god grant us to see it the world isn't getting better don't let anyone fool you on that point no the world is still drifting away from christ the world needs christians as salt for society perhaps more desperately and urgently than it's needed them at any time since the early days of christianity when no question the gospel was going out into a pagan world We are getting back into that and we need the salt of Christian influence desperately again. So what are we doing and how are we being salt and light? I said earlier that the university is the center of the wealth and power and influence of the Western world. There's no question about this. About 25 years ago, a man who had been... um, the ambassador of Lebanon in Washington and then president of the General Assembly of the United Nations, Uh, taught for many years uh, at the American University of Beirut, at Dartmouth, at Harvard, the American University in Washington. A man named Charles Malik was giving uh, the Pascal lectures on Christianity in the university at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. And he said this, he said this great Western institution, the university, dominates the world today more than any other institution, more than the church, more than the government, more than all other institutions. And he did not know to say it at that time, but I will add, more than Microsoft. All right? And he says the university's influence is so pervasive and total that whatever problem afflicts them is bound to have far-reaching repercussions throughout the entire fabric of Western civilization. No task is more crucial and urgent today than to examine the state of the mind and spirit in the western university. If the university today dominates the world, if Jesus Christ is who the and the Bible proclaim him to be, and if we happen to believe that what the church and the Bible claim about Jesus Christ is the truth, then how can we fail not only to raise the question of what Jesus Christ thinks of the university? But to face the equally urgent demand, what can be done? What does Jesus think of the university? Honestly. Remember those bracelets? What would Jesus do? Let's change it. What would Jesus think? What would Jesus think of the university? I love G.K. Chesterton, and I know he hates Calvinists. And I know that there's a strong question about him being uh, anti-German and fomenting world war. But I love G.K. Chesterton. One of the reasons I love him is that G.K. Chesterton takes second place to none in terms of his intellect. And yet he saw through the hypocrisy of the intellect. One of my favorite quotes of G.K. Chesterton in talking about the apparatus of modern scholarship is he says that all the talk of what is latest in scholarship is merely the giggling excitement over fashion. Now, I'm not denigrating uh, LASIK surgery. I think it's an improvement. And I could go on and on about the improvement of scholarship for us. There's much in scholarship that's good. All truth, as Art Holmes used to be fond of pointing out, Not original, but He put our nose to the grindstone. All truth is God's truth. But isn't it something how much of the university is pretense and pride? Isn't it something the lethal and toxic climate of the university today? And make no mistake about it, it is lethal and it is toxic. And only the warriors that belong to Christ should be on the campus. Because the campus will do everything it can to silence your witness. You know what witness is in Greek? Huh? You know what the word is? Come on, somebody say it. Martyr. That's the word in Greek. You are to be my martyrs, my witnesses. So what about you? Are you salt and are you light? I got a real kick out of some of the things that uh, Matthew Henry said about this text. Um, Matthew Henry says that we are to insinuate ourselves into the minds of the people so that we may transform the people into the taste and relish of the Gospel. And immediately... I thought of Dr. Bradley insinuating himself into the minds of his students. What does it mean to insinuate yourself? Some of you women got a husband that way. You insinuated yourselves into the life of a young man that you decided would make a godly husband and father. God bless you. What does it mean to insinuate yourselves into the minds and the hearts of your students and your colleagues? How do you do that? Dr. Bradley, unrehearsed, would you please come here? Yes, you. (laughs) Dr. Bradley, huh? Oh, no, 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 there's only one. (laughs) Come here. And Mrs. Bradley, would you come too, please? And there's only one of them. (laughs) Years well, you know, I have to introduce you first. Years ago, I heard of a man who was a professor of mechanical engineering. Now, in the echelon of academic pride, that's middling. It's at the top, okay. At Purdue, it would be. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, at A and M, yeah. And I heard that he was going around the country speaking of the Lord. Had no knowledge of Stephen and Christine, none. I also knew that certain people looked down on him because of his witness, and so I loved him. Now you've heard me tell how I love Paige Patterson because the New York Times spits on him all the time. All right, I loved. Professor Bradley, and then God sent us Stephen and Christie. Yesterday, I observed some things about Dr. and Mrs. Bradley, and then I talked to them, and I want you to go back to what I said about Matthew Henry, and I quoted him. He said, we are to do what? What's the word? We are to insinuate ourselves in the minds and hearts of the people that we're with. Now, Dr. Bradley, would you tell them about this uh, movie thing? Oh, please.
1: For many years, we've had students over to watch movies on a Friday night as a way of providing a uh, context for talking about our faith. Uh, The movies that we invite students to see are usually movies that are not Christian movies. They're sometimes popular movies, even by very non-Christian producers like Woody Allen, who most of you know is a reprobate uh, uh, in terms of faith, but he makes movies that raise important questions. like. uh, if there isn't a God, can there be moral structure to the universe? And so we're more interested in having movies that have raised interesting questions. And then during the discussion, we can talk about whether we agree or disagree with the answer that the author gave. Uh, as an example, I was sharing with Tim this spring. Uh, Baylor has an atheist and agnostic group. And that's a Christian university, so it's not officially recognized atheist and agnostic group. But it's a, a group that gets together. <coughs> they had invited me to speak this spring. Uh, To their group, actually, I asked one of the students (coughs) who was in one of my classes previously uh, if he would like for me to come and speak. So I sort of insinuated myself into the group, uh, and uh, and they said, "Well, fine." And so I have I gave a talk on uh, how the origin of life points clearly to design uh, and to a designer, uh, and then offered to share with them some other ideas for programs. And so they said, uh, "Well, sure." You know, I said you could have more substantive programs if you had. Better resources. And I've been collecting these kinds of resources for about 20 years. So I showed them a bunch of options, and one of the options that they selected was, uh, um, the, um, documentary, I guess is the right term, put, put on by PBS called The Question of God C.S. Lewis versus Sigmund Freud Debate God, Love, Sex, and the Meaning of Life. And they thought, well, that sounded pretty fair. Sigmund Freud is a pretty big champion for atheists, and these guys knew that. And, they, of course, most of them had heard of C.S. Lewis. And so uh, the problem they had was they didn't have a place to have their uh, movie on campus because they're not allowed to use any of the facilities because they're not a recognized group. So we thought, well, would you like to come to our house? We'd be happy to host this evening for you. Uh, we offered hamburger patties if they would bring buns and all the trimmings. We wanted this to be a partnership, not a one-way deal, and so they did. We had 16 students come. Uh, we watched this very, very fine program. If you've never seen it before, there's a book by the same name, uh, by Armand Nikolai, and it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful PBS program. He's a professor at Harvard. He's been teaching a course by this title that's extremely popular for 20 years, and he's a wonderful example also, Tim, of what you're talking about. Um, so the students came. We watched the program, and we had the best discussion for an hour and a half that was not A debate, it was really a time of real mutual exchange and discussion with respect. Uh, The students had such a nice time, they said, listen, could we do this again and do a different movie? And we said, well, uh, maybe next fall. And they said, well, why not in May? And we said, well, in May we have final exams and then we all go home. Well, we could do it during dead days. And so we said, well, fine. If some of you want to do that, we passed a little uh, napkin around for them to put their email addresses. 16 kids signed up. And we actually had uh, the movie this past Tuesday. yeah, have Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, and we had 12 kids come. We saw Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors. And again, we had a wonderful discussion after that. And the kids were all and we want to continue to do this next year. So Ann and I have sort of become the ex-officio faculty sponsors for this unrecognized group at uh, Baylor uh, called the Atheist and Agnostic Group. But frankly, of all the movies we've ever had, these these last two have been the most productive because we had such a high percentage of kids that were not already believers. And uh, and we just had, we we developed some good friendships with these kids. An said, the one who's sort of the most agnostic in the group, came early to help with arranging in the kitchen and everything and getting all the food made. And he was the one that wanted to do another movie. And so we feel like God has really got a lot of these kids uh, uh, in his hands. Uh, and we get to sort of uh, hell blow on the coals uh, as the Holy Spirit works. And...
0: Now, and... <laughs> All right. Now, here's the other half. I want you to understand the cost of this. There's a reason why we're not salt and light. Now, would you tell them what you think of the movie... Crimes and misdemeanors and of Woody Allen. Awful. <laughs> <laughs> and are you happy to have his movie showing in your house? Oh yes. For this are reason. Are you sure? Yeah. All right. What about the dirt in your kitchen? Are you happy to have that?
1: Uh, All the
0: time. Throughout the lifetime of your husband. <laughs> now be honest.
1: Ah, if I'm not walking closely with the Lord, I don't like it. But when I see the overall you purpose... you
0: with your husband about it? Oh, yeah. Okay, guys, it's not easy. There's a reason why you don't do it, and they do. <laughs> Thank you. Listen, it's very, very difficult to insinuate yourselves into people's lives. And as is typical of the Christian home, the wives carry the brunt of it. He's in there talking, and she's in the kitchen cleaning. And that's the story of her life. And it will be the story of your life, Christy. And that was the story of my mother's life, and it was the story of Mary Lee's mother's life. It still is the story of her life at 90 years old. I can remember countless times going over to their home right after church Sunday morning. Last minute, Mr. Taylor, you remember, they already had a, a whole, a whole uh, what's it called, uh, a quiver. They already had a, a whole quiver of kids, ten. But even when the tailings were the only ones left at home, Mr. Taylor would bring a whole quiver home from church on Sunday morning. Mrs. Taylor would just add some potatoes to the pot. And so you look at this godly man and this godly woman. Okay? Long before we knew Stephen and Christie, I knew them. How did I know them? They'd insinuated themselves into the life of the American university. He's out speaking, she's home alone. You think she enjoyed that? And then when he's home, it's even more of a pain because she has to clean up after him. You think she likes having Woody Allen in her living room? And what happens? O cross that seeketh me through plain, I dare not ask to fly from thee. O love that wilt not let me go. In other words... When we don't obey the command that we are to be salt and light, there's a good reason that we're not obeying it. So, okay, you want me to chill out and get off the subject? I'm not going to. Now, I hope you all realize that I had a lot of my time cut off today. (laughs) so i am going to um and last week we got done on time so i'm going to ask today for special dispensation um not from the pope but from our elders and to go a little bit longer if all of you will promise that you will not talk in this room but that you will go out front because it's nice and that some of us will stay here and clean up quickly okay we all promise that you'll leave and go t- out front to talk okay there are doors there, there, here, and here. You can exit quickly, all right, and we'll clean up quickly. But I want to say a few other things. So I'm thinking about preaching this today, and I'm, I'm, I'm over at the party for Stephen's, uh, what do you call it, a hood winking? Or? <laughs> Stephen got a hood yesterday, and I'm proud of you. Every good father teases his son. Um, So Stephen's having a party, and many of us were there yesterday after Abram and and Anna's party. And uh, we're at a shelter, and there's a period of time where I'm not talking to anybody. And I back up, and the shelter's here, and I'm over here. And I'm looking down the right side of the shelter, so I can see everybody. There's some kids and people playing over here, and there's a soccer game, right? Okay? Okay. And I look down the shelter, and what I see is this. I see a beautiful, wonderfully loving group of CGS people sitting at the tables with, with each other and talking. And there's fellowship going on, and encouragement, and friendship, and very important work. And it's just beautiful. But you know that there's a hook coming, right? Okay? Then I look right in front of me, and here are tables outside of the shelter. And there at that table are unbelievers. They're not sitting with the CGS people. Who do you think they're sitting with? Just take a wild guess. I'm getting a little passive-aggressive now. Who do you think they're sitting with? Well, would it surprise you to know Dr. and Mrs. Bradley? They come across the country to have a party to celebrate their son's accomplishments and what do they spend their time doing? Being salt and light. Do you understand? And then later, I see Dr. Bradley over talking to Varuni. And tell them, what was he saying to you, Varuni? I overheard it. And were they things about being salt and light? So here Dr. Bradley is with his son and his daughter-in-law and his in-laws and his grandchildren. And he finds Rooney and he's talking to her about how she can be salt and white back in Sri Lanka and where Christian professors are and how they become Christians in the U.S. when they come over to study as international students. Now, let me ask you, why couldn't you guys have done that? Was what you were doing with one another so important? No, it wasn't important. It was impotent. Generally, that's what happens when you're important, is that you're impotent. Then I looked at the end of the shelter, and it was a whole group of people, a number of unbelievers. A number of them didn't know each other. And there were no CGS people in that whole group. And Dr. and Mrs. Bradley couldn't be two places at once. So guess who finally went down there and hung with them? Like father, like son. There Steve was. And I'm not even talking about all of the people that were over playing soccer. Okay, so what are our priorities? Are we salt? Are we light? Is that who we are? Is that who we are? For years, I've thought that the reason that our church doesn't have a heart of evangelism is that when you think about bringing people into the church of Christ, and you know, this church, Scripture tells us that the church is to be what? Look with me at 1 Timothy, please. Because this is what Jesus is saying saying when He talks about being salt and light. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, you find an incidental statement that is at the very heart of the Christian church. Paul says to Timothy in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 3, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in what? In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the what? The pillar and support of the truth. And I used to think that the church being the pillar and support of the truth, that God would always be pleased to do much evangelism in our midst as He did in the early church. We find clear indications that the early church's worship was evangelistic. We've seen it happen in our own service. We've seen Varuni profess faith in Jesus Christ. And be baptized. We've seen other people. Brian Bailey, while well, he was at law school here, came as an unbeliever and came to worship. So I've, I've, I've wondered why we don't bring people. We, we all have friends on the campus who are unbelievers, right? We all have them, right? So why don't we bring them? And for years, I have thought that the reason is that um, my sermons aren't nuanced and soft enough. And that if I would get softer and, and gentler, that then all of you would have the faith to bring people with you. And that really, I'm so offensive that that's the reason that we don't bring pagans here. And I've realized that that's not the reason. Because yesterday, I was doing nothing except taking pictures. And you still were in type. There's not an issue of offense there. You know what it really is? This is pure selfishness. We come to church and we want this to be the place that restores us so we can go back and suffer the rest of the week. And then, of course, we don't suffer the rest of the week. (laughs) You know, but we still want this to be what Monty Python refers to as a comfy chair. Fetch me a comfy chair. And so we come in here and we want everything the way we want it. We want our music the way we want it. And we are, are a unique group of people, mainly musicians and mathematicians, that want a sermon that cuts. So we have a, a very esoteric taste in sermons. all right? And we want to have home fellowship groups because we want to have good fellowship. But what we don't want is to have somebody sitting next to us who's hemorrhaging. And if somebody comes in our fellowship who's hemorrhaging, we avoid them. Because our purpose in coming to church is what? Fetch me a comfy chair. It's to have our needs met. Mrs. Bradley, when her husband brings people home to lead them to the kingdom, does Mr. Bradley bring Mrs. Bradley a comfy chair? And this is this poor woman's home. <laughs> this is her home. A home is supposed to be a woman's Castle. And here her husband bombs in with a bunch of agnostics and atheists. And, you know, they're some of the more gnarly types, right? And then shows them a Woody Allen flick. What is this man thinking? Every single command of Scripture that we don't obey, there's a good reason we don't obey it. Every single one. And the reason that we don't obey being salt and light is that it is costly. Did you notice, and I'm coming to the end, did you notice this last week that they had a timeline on the Indiana Sta- Daily Student, which is our campus newspaper, of uh, President Herbert's tenure? Did any of you see that timeline going across the bottom of all the pages? Nobody saw it? Only your pastor saw it? Taylor saw it? Oh, okay, Abram saw it. I was surprised you didn't show up on that timeline. Because Abram has been writing columns for that paper that have been prophetic. Did you notice who did show up on the first page right at the beginning of Adam Herbert's tenure? Did you notice... A man named Eric Rasmussen. At the very beginning of that timeline was a little item right on the front page, and what it said was Eric Rasmussen, and it gave the date, publishes anti-gay statements on his blog on Indiana University commutes servers. All right? Eric Rasmussen, Professor Eric Rasmussen. You remember the story, some of you. Professor Rasmussen pointed to the fact that one of the sins that characterizes the male homosexual community is a tendency to prey on younger boys. And he was concerned about men who are homosexually tempted being involved in the teaching in our public school districts. And in an academic forum with another academic, he was talking about this being a concern of his in the hiring of people tempted by homosexuality to teach. you remember this? Some of you remember this. And I'm speaking strictly accurately, all hell broke loose. Do you remember what happened to Eric? Immediately they came to him and demanded that the blog be taken down. And Eric is a disembodied brain. And Eric, it took him a second to catch up with what was going on because he'd been speaking academically. Looking for truth. And that's what academics are supposed to get. Except that there are some truths that must not be set. And that's one of them. And so Eric talked about this and his blog was yanked down. And immediately, Eric, I remember talking to him and Eric said to me, "I said, I'm convinced that it'll go back up soon. Why? Because we still have a rather arcane freedom in America. It's being nipped and tucked. But there still is uh, academic freedom. There still is uh, freedom of the press. And so sure enough, a day or so later, his blog was put back up intact. Well, that wasn't the end of it. Do you remember the morality play followed? Some of you remember what happened? It then went before the faculty senate. And we had at that time a vice chancellor named... Anybody remember her name? Sharon Bream. And she went into that faculty senate meeting and she read those people the riot act. She was out for blood. Some of you remember this? She was out for blood. But you know what? God is God. Do you remember who was a member of the faculty senate at that time? Eric Rasmussen. (laughs) He was sitting in that room as she read them the riot act. He was respectful. He was calm. He showed up. He was a Christian. And do you remember that not very long later at all? Do you remember what happened? The Indiana University campus was minus a very high administrator named Sharon Bream. Now, I'm not saying that this happened because of what she did in that meeting. It doesn't matter to me. And do you know who is still at Indiana University in the business school? Eric Rasmussen. He's still a disembodied brain. He shows up and he's a Christian. Now, a lot of you would say to me, well, he shouldn't have said what he said. I say, oh yeah, you know, the Apostle Paul should never have said what he said. A lot of you would say, well, do you realize the opprobrium that brought on us as Christians on the campus? I say, you realize the opprobrium that Paul brought on every group of Christians he ever spoke in front of when he was out in public? What did Jesus say? Jesus said what? Jesus said, you are what? The salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You know what's pathetic? Absolutely pathetic. Do you know what defines the use of the word light in this context in our culture today? A certain song. You know what the song is? It's written by, my guess is, Bernie Taupin and sung by Elton John. And it's called A Candle in the Wind. Who's the candle in the wind? It's Princess die. What is she a light for? What was she a light for? With this, I'm done. But humor me and let me finish. I'm reading Calvin on this text. And as I'm reading Calvin, all of a sudden a news flash comes across my screen from email. And I find out that the president of the Evangelical Theological Society, has converted to Roman Catholicism. Francis Beckwith. All right? And I'm thinking, what is going on here? One of those prominent Protestant evangelical intellectuals in the world. And then I read Calvin, and Calvin says this, writing at the time of the Reformation, quote, "...the wickedness of the papists..." Now, that was a word they used for Roman Catholics at the time. It's obsolete today. It's archaic. But back then, they called them papists. He says, "...the wickedness of the papists is therefore intolerable..." as if it had been the design of Christ to allow the apostles unbounded liberty and to make them tyrants of souls instead of reminding them of their duty that they might not swerve from the right path. Christ declares what sort of men He wishes the teachers of His church to be. Those who without any proper grounds give themselves out to be apostles hide by this covering all the abominations which they are pleased to introduce because Christ pronounced Peter and His companions companions to be the salt of the earth they do not at the same time consider the sharp and severe reproof which is added that if they become tasteless they are the worst of all now what am i reading this for you have absolutely no idea right here's calvin writing at the time of the reformation and saying that the papists are trying to use being appointed apostles by christ as a means of absolutely and completely avoiding being savor as salt, being tasteful as salt. In other words, they're claiming that text is their mandate for what they do leading the church. And then they're completely, completely losing any savor or saltiness. And this was true of the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformers. Now, what does this have to do with Francis Beckwith? You know something? You know who lacks salt today? You know who lacks savor? You know who is a light hidden under a bushel today? Come on, you know what I'm going to say. It's Protestant evangelicals. That's who it is. And you know who does have salt today and who is light? Around the world! Do you know who it is? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Come on. It is the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. I praise God for that Pope before he ever became Pope. I gave thanks to God for him because he wrote the single best treatment of euthanasia when he was at the head of the congregation for the sacred doctrine of the faith. Do you know that I was reading a New Yorker piece about a militaristic Islamic imam. And in the middle of that piece about this man in Cairo, do you know what that man said in The New Yorker when he was interviewed? He talked about how thankful he was to God for the Pope. (laughs) And do you know why? Because of the witness of the Pope against the darkness of this world. Why do you think Francis Beckwith converted? Francis Beckwith is no dummy. And he looks at the evangelical church and what he sees is nothing. That we're not showing up. And then you look into the Roman Catholic church. What do you have every single time they kill babies at the abortuary here? Every single time. You have Roman Catholics and you have... Church of the Good Shepherd. That's it. And thank God this is a community that has Church of the Good Shepherd. Because otherwise it would just be the Roman Catholics. When I wanted to bring prophetic people to the PCUSA General Assembly to speak on abortion, do you know who God allowed me to bring? Who I chose? I tried to get C. Everett Coop, but what he told me was, and, and he was a close family friend, he told me, no, I can't do that until I leave Washington. And then I tried to get him to come and speak on Baby Doe now that he's at Dartmouth and has his own kingdom. Do you think he'd come? No. Somehow he got out of Washington and he was still silent. And so do you know who we brought to General Assembly? Two people. Mother Teresa. And she was a prophetess to the shame of the men. And you know who the other person we brought was? A man who bore more abuse in his lifetime in his church than any man in this country. John Cardinal O'Connor. Do you remember what the homosexuals did in his worship services in New York City? And he was a prophet. Listen. The Roman Catholic Church does not have biblical doctrine. I'm not trying to get you to convert to Catholicism. What I'm trying to get us to agree to do is to pour gasoline on ourselves and to light ourselves on fire. And if you don't get tenure, I'll cry with joy. Let's pray.